1: Radio today as promised uh, our super entrepreneur. I do like talking to entrepreneurs and Miles van der Moelen who's the chief executive of Keme has had more than his fair share of a lifetime of challenges. Miles, uh, before we go into all of those challenges, let's just start off with Keme itself. The idea, I've seen pictures of you on Facebook with a, uh, is that a captain's uh, regalia or insignia on your shoulders? (laughs)
2: Yes, I do fly. Um, I don't fly uh, that much anymore because um, operating the the, the airline um, obviously was my primary duty and took most of my time. But uh, my background is as a pilot, and I do do enjoy um, still doing it uh, from time to time.
1: Okay, so you're a pilot, and then you decide to start an airline.
2: Pretty much. There's a couple of steps in between there. Um, So uh, from from being a pilot, I ended up getting involved in in the... uh, Uh, business side and the operations side of of aircraft and uh, particularly elsewhere on the continent where um, infrastructure is is, uh, lighter and and there's some opportunities for small to to, to mid-sized aircraft um, to to, to play a role. Um, Over a decade and a half that grew and uh, we ended up with uh, equipment that was appropriate to to use in the local market and we launched a a regional uh, scheduled service uh, around about six or seven years ago, I guess now.
1: Mm. And then disaster struck recently uh, with the decision by the Civil Aviation Authority to shut you down or to ground you. Just explain the background to that and, and, and how they could do something of that nature. It came in a couple
2: of waves. Um, it started as we got into sort of the 50 to 100 seating class aircraft. We found that the headwinds got stronger and stronger. And uh, the time to get any documentation processed it became more and more extended. Um, in February last year we um uh, had a short grounding um that we uh, at that point we we, we chose to, to try and take the, the just do whatever they need you to do approach um and uh, and resolved it however we became clear that uh, that this wasn't um that, that wasn't going to be the end of it um we had a further grounding in in december um, for a new cause that was overturned um, by the, the urgent court on, on an interdict basis. Then uh, in, in early January, we had yet another grounding on for yet another cause, um, which was subsequently overturned by the Department of Transport uh, Civil Aviation Appeal Committee.
1: Mm. And uh, that doesn't really help you because although it's been overturned, it hasn't been that easy to get back in the air.
2: It hasn't. So the judgment came out on the 29th of April, and as we as we have this conversation, we still aren't operational again. The reason being during the lengthy appeal process, the certificate um, in the ordinary course uh, passage of time expired. Um, and now we are trying to get the renewal process, and we're finding that uh, frustrating. There's no actual issue that anybody can point at, um, but it's just provide further documentation, provide further documentation, Um, We're looking at it three weeks later, you get a response. That kind of approach has been very frustrating.
1: Miles, how many aircraft does Chem Air own?
2: Um, We had a mixture between our own fleet and the lease fleet. I think we were at uh, 23 by the time of the grounding.
1: 23 Um, on the ground. But what happens now when you can't fly?
2: Uh, Some of those aircraft, we moved to to foreign registers. We have, um, again, a large portion of our our income. In fact, the largest portion of our income was from foreign operations. Um, So uh, at the time of the grounding, we were probably in in eight or nine different African countries for for various organizations, including... um, uh, larger resource companies, United Nations. So uh, a, a lot of people were inconvenienced by their grounding and have nothing, no connection at all to South Africa. Um, and uh, in some cases, we were able to move those aircraft to our existing customers, so they um, operated as, as a as a local aeroplane instead of as a South African aeroplane. And in many cases, the aeroplanes were, were were stranded, and it took us some months in order um, to be able to to move them to even to an airport of safety in some cases.
1: Hmm. So in South Africa, you decided to 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 fly to the smaller centres, uh, Plettenberg correct, Bay, yeah. uh, Margate, uh, Hoopstoke, oh. etc. Also, true. flying to those centres, or many of them, is SA Express. And we we had a, a report this week from the Free Market Foundation, which researched SA Express and discovered that every every uh, um, <laughs> As you can hear, sorry. Uh, every, every
2: seat flown was, a, yeah, my was apologies. an expensive one. Yeah, every, yeah.
1: every seat uh, was costing the taxpayer an almost 4,000 rand. Now, these are huge numbers, and uh, given that they were competing directly with you, you must have some pretty strong thoughts on what's going on there.
2: Absolutely. In fact, you know, as I said, our headwind started really when we started getting into the seating class um, of, of the likes of, of SA Express. In fact, we operate very similar um, equipment types to that that, um, that entity. And uh, our initial, the, the first route we competed directly against SA Express on was um, bloomfontein when we started, uh, I guess, around about three years ago. Um, and the the approach of, of the entity um, when a new entrant uh, came into the market was 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 shocking, honestly. In what way? Well, they immediately entered into a price war. Um, literally, uh, the, the day we started, they dropped their fares by, I would guess, 40%.
1: But surely that's predatory pricing, given that they've been subsidized by government by about one and a half billion rand in the past year, we believe.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, if you go back further in their history, they've had, um, they haven't produced financials since 2016. The four sets of financials before that um, contained a material um, qualification um, and even so showed um, a, a loss over the... Of the, the, the entire period with substantial amount of money. So it's, a, it's an entity that has, um, has not for, for a long time contributed uh, financially to the fiscus at all. Um, so, and, and one of the reasons why we started looking at the routes operated by SA Express, is their operational record was weak. They had um, on-time performance issues, customer satisfaction issues, and uh, therefore they were a logical airline to compete against because we could demonstrate um, a service um, alternative that, was, that would add value to customers.
1: Miles van der Moelen, uh, and a man who is fighting a, a, a very good fight, as you can hear, against almost overwhelming odds, but at least the more that people get to understand what is going on, in the, um, in, in the world of aviation and with SA Express which is a government entity I guess the more people might believe that it is time uh, that government steps away from the private sector <laughs> So, warm welcome to our fireball, Paul O'Sullivan. Hi there, Paul. Sorry to uh, be a little bit late in coming to you. We've had a few technical issues. It happens in the early days, but you haven't had any technical issues at all. Before we go into uh, the Hogan, Lo- uh, Hogan Lovell story, CMC D Ravenna, the Italian company we spoke about last time, have there, has there been any update on that?
3: Uh- Published uh, some of the data on our website. Um, the, the the group CEO of CMC De Ravenna, who is now based in Italy, was previously the country manager for South Africa. And last week, uh, international warrants of arrest were issued for him in Nairobi. So, <clears throat> in addition, working through our good friend Peter Hain. Uh, we've now started an attack on the London Bank, which is um, an Italian bank, private bank based in London, who makes it off the Italians living in the UK. And they received quite a, a big chunk of the money that's been swiped down here in Africa. So um, Peter Hayne very kindly uh, wrote a letter to the Bank of England last week and now their license is under investigation. We've asked for their license to be withdrawn.
1: He's also been having a go at Bain. Uh, have you got an update on that one, how how that's going?
3: Yeah, so I think what, what we have over here, um, apart from KPMG, who actually came clean, well, sort of came clean, you know, their version of coming clean, uh, the rest of the entities we've attacked, which is Bain, um, McKinsey's, Hogan Lovell's, they've all put their head in the sand and they've claimed total ignorance or they've even retaliated by saying, we don't know what we're talking about. I think in the case of Peter, they accused him of talking hogwash. So um, we we say, well, you know, if you guys have got nothing uh, to hide, you you should open your books to us because we know what you've been up to and we're going to punish you for it. So really, at the end of the day, they must... They must take their punishment and we, we've made it clear we're not going to let up. As you know, um, and I think that probably brings us nicely back to where we, we were going to start. Uh, Hogan Lovells, um, uh, are now shutting down their big offices in Santon, which curiously they share with, um, McKinsey's who are also, you know, an apple in our eye. Now, um, McKinsey's have downsized in South Africa as well, Hogan Lovells are downsizing, and it appears to me that Lavery Medici, who in our opinion was less than transparent uh, in this whole issue, um, Lavery Medici is now taking some of his staff and taking a hike from Hogan Lovells and recommencing his, his law firm that, that became part of the Hogan Lovells partnership. But earlier in the year, their whole mining division, uh, the partner of their mining division and all the people under him took a hike as well. So I think uh, Hogan Lovells is now a shadow of its former self. And we've made it clear that, you know, we've got lots of time on our hands. And when, when it suits us, we will start attacking their client base. Paul, what
1: exactly did Hogan Lovells do in the whole state capture saga?
3: Okay, so the the one of the, the thing that they're most known for is the protection of the SARS um, senior executives that were put in place by Tom Moyani. Um, and those two executives were engaged in um, shall we say suspicious transactions through their bank accounts. And Hogan Lovell's pretty much whitewashed that whole thing. But Our concern with Hogan Lovell's wasn't that. We just added that to the 19-page letter, which we still haven't had a response to. And in that 19-page letter, which is on our website, our chapter and verse about how they were unlawfully appointed by the then Minister of Police and Nklamerza, who was the unlawfully appointed head of Hawks and that their sole function in life was to drag down the criminal justice system by going after Anwar Dramat, Shadrach Sabir, and Robert McBride, and others. Now, we worked together with the Helen Sussman Foundation, and they launched applications to set aside the appointment of Mkwemirza. And they used um, the pro Bono department of Weber Benchel. And they put a fairly solid case together and, of course, they won. And Hogan Lovells, uh, who were paid millions and millions of rand, took it on appeal to the appeal court, lost again, and then took it on appeal to the constitutional court. So we're saying they knew at all material times that they were going to lose, but it wasn't about winning or losing. It was about playing for time and they assisted those that were the architects of state capture, particularly the capture of the criminal justice system, they assisted them to stay in power for an 18-month period longer than they would have been in power.
1: And I guess also reaped quite a, a lovely reward from taxpayers.
3: Well, yeah, that's the other thing, you know, and if you look at the legislation, the Public Finance Management Act, It makes it clear that any state-owned entity that wishes to litigate has to go through the state attorney's office. Um, Both Incomeza and the Minister of Police chose to bypass the state attorney's office and appoint Hogan Lovells, who completely ignored the public finance management act and made millions and millions and millions. And to this day, we don't know how many millions, but we know it's a lot.
1: Paul, what is interesting in all of this was that the South African Law Society has taken no action against Hogan levels, and in the UK, the SRA, uh, which Peter Hain has reported them to, has also taken no action. Why would this be? Well,
3: the Solicitors Regulation Authority in the UK, quite rightly, have taken no action because it's the conduct took place in South Africa, and they're saying it was outside their jurisdiction. Now, the South African um of the northern provinces, I'm sad to say, I think, so sometimes they get it right, sometimes they don't, and this is one of those times where they didn't. And the peers in the industry haven't really done much to take them to task either so the good news is that Hogan Lovells as it was is going to vanish there will be a presence now in South Africa but those people will be part of the London office so if they're involved in any more hanky-panky the solicitor's regulation authority will indeed um, have the jurisdiction to deal with them
1: Mm. And just to recap on that, when you say they're going to disappear from South Africa, they've got this huge big office there. What exactly is happening uh, to the firm?
3: So, remember Hogan Lovells in South Africa was a partnership of Hogan Lovells in London and um, Lavery Medici's firm, I can't remember the Rutledge, name of it. Rutledge
1: McCullum's. Yes. That's it, mm-hmm.
3: Yes. And ho- hopefully they will, they will suffer because hopefully they will vanish into obscurity. And certainly wherever Lavery Medici goes, we will follow and we will chastise him. He is not getting off the hook.
1: So the split in the old Hogan levels with 21 partners going off in this new firm and then five staying with the, with the UK partnership. Are those 21 partners and, and 50 more lawyers? So that's quite a big firm. Is that where Mr. Modise and, uh, and, and his like are ending up?
3: I assume so. Mm, but as I said, we're going to follow them. We're not going to, we, we're going to be like the proverbial hyena behind the kudu. Every time it thinks he's shaking them off and slows down, 10 minutes later he looks behind and we, you know, we're on their tail.
1: So what do you want from them, Paul?
3: I want them to come clean. I want to know how many millions they were paid of taxpayers' money, and I want to know the. I want them to provide us with the evidence that we can use to null the criminals that were that they were protecting.
1: But isn't that a client attorney privilege?
3: Uh, except when you break the law, and they broke the law, they mm. should never have been appointed in the first place. It was in breach of the PSMA. And, you know, they, they must be held accountable.
1: But presumably the partners would have been paid bonuses based on the fees that were earned?
3: I imagine the partners are laughing all the way to the bank. At the moment? Well, all along.
1: David Shapiro joins us now, and uh, well, Dave, uh, it's been a very interesting week on markets. <laughs> just, just to help us out to understand a little bit, this volatility, one day mm. the Dow drops 300 mm. plus points, next day mm. the Dow rises 300 plus points. I know I'm talking about America, but it affects the rest of the world. Wh- mm. What's going on?
4: You know what, the, the big worry, I mean, if, if we look at last Wednesday, uh, when Jay Powell, reduced interest rates in the u.s he actually painted a very steady picture of where the u.s economy was and that was reinforced by the job numbers that we got on friday so overall we're in a very i think we're in a good space we're ratcheting up slowly we're not runaway, but but uh, there's no worries of recession or anything of that so you're in a position where you can continue to add to your equity exposure uh, globally so that's the kind of background that we paint all of a sudden Thursday, all hell breaks loose because unexpectedly uh, Trump imposes further tariffs on uh, China, to which China responds with uh, possible currency weakening. And then you get this tit-for-tat calling names and so on. So why does it play out like this? It's not because of what's happening in the global economy, Alec. It's the worries of what happens down the line, uh, worries about uh, business investment uh, no one knows what the next move is. We don't know what Trump's ultimate aim is. You know what his end game is. Is this election ploy, uh, or is there a genuine desire to to punish China? And then you don't know China's response and how that how that plays out. So, to be honest, we're in a very we're in very uncertain times because of worries about business investment and also whether people whether investment uh, companies in this kind of climate are going to reinvest in their business, employ people, and so on. So this can actually spark a recession. You know, I'm not a, I'm. You know me, I'm bullish. I love to look at the positive side of things, but there's a great amount of uncertainty. Simply, we don't know what the next move is, and we don't know what Trump can do to actually further weaken uh, the global economy.
1: Yep, and when a so, guy is guy's in uh, that office, that very powerful yes. office, he... Influences people sitting in Johannesburg looking at their share portfolios (laughs) just because he might be wanting to get elected or re-elected next year.
4: That's exactly it. So understand, this is simply a confidence factor, and that's where the volatility is coming. So the fact that you're getting bond rates virtually, you know, plunging all the time. This is ten-year. People are prepared in the U.S. to put their money into a ten-year bond to earn what 1.6, 1.7% shows you. How desperate they are just for safety and uh, just to warehouse it somewhere, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, as a safe haven. And that's why gold's going up. That's why precious metals are going up. On the other hand, you're getting industrial metals going the other ways on worries about uh, uh, where this all leads to.
1: David, I've got a question from Kieran who wants to know from you why is Aspen in a downward spiral? Is there any hope of recovery? Should we, we don't know.
4: that It's a worry. You know what I mean? It's a worry because Alec, you know, with businesses, what happens is they go with bad news, but you always hope that down the line, they're going to turn it around. You know, Aspen has come under immense pressure because of, uh, huge amounts of debt they have. And also it's taken a lot slower for, uh, some of the acquisitions they made to actually, uh, produce the benefits that we thought it would. But as it lingers, as it goes on, and nobody comes in to uh, to to save the company or to buy the company, or we'll put it this way, to buy the story. You have to get worried. Now, where Aspen is at levels that I think we last saw maybe six, seven, eight years ago. I haven't looked at a chart, but um, I think, from my point of view, I think it's about at least six or seven years. So we've fallen all that way back, and no one's coming in with news. You know, normally news kind of creeps out into the market. It's not meant to be insider, but you pick up little bits uh, that are happening at the company that gives you the uh, confidence to go in and, and buy. We're not seeing that. And, and, and I want to add, we're seeing the same thing in Cecil as well. Cecil under 300 is starting to cause concern because there's some positive stories about cash flow, about once the uh, uh, facility at uh, Lake Charles is completed, that it will release a lot of cash, which will be paid in dividends. No one's buying the story, and the share keeps getting weaker. So you start to hold back and worry and say, you know, <laughs> when's the other shoe going to drop? You know, when are we, we going to hear this story? And that's, that's why you've got to be very cautious at times like this.
1: But when you look at Aspen, Dave, uh, mm. that was listed in '99. It got... It got to 406 Rand a share, yeah. and that's not that long ago. Um, it, it then, that was in 2014, when it, 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 five years ago. When it, it, Since then, it's been one-way traffic. It's down to 84 bucks at the moment. And, well, if you're saying that nobody's buying the story, nobody's been buying the story for five years.
4: That's right. I know that's no one has been buying the story. They've been, funny enough, analysts have been a lot more uh, sanguine about the outlook along that journey downwards. This is temporary; they'll get it right, and so on. But I think the shock came um, when was it? A, almost a year ago, I think, yeah, around about August, when they dropped from that 300 down to 160, 140, and then have continued downwards. Uh, there's been no good news. Uh, following the problems that they had. And then also the fact that they had to sell their nutrition business or their uh, sorry milk formula business, uh, those are issues of desperation. So they're still battling with a lot of debt. And yeah. we haven't heard anything positive come out. You know, you need to feed us that positive news, all right, uh, this has happened, or uh, we're talking, you know, not talking to creditors, or along the line, there's, there's something happening at the company that makes you feel positive, that puts you into the mark. We haven't seen that. And having broken below 100 again or 90 is a worrying sign.
1: Are you spot on. About a year ago, the share price was at 141 Rand, and then you had uh, that disastrous news that came out, and since then, it really has been been under a lot of pressure. So um, does Kieran take his, his losses or uh, does he hold on?
4: Well, you know, that, I, from my point of view, probably at, at these levels, I would maybe take my losses. I would say, hold on, you know, because if he wants to come back, let's say the company does turn around. You know, if it's going to turn around, it's going to turn around proper. In other words, It's going to go from 90 to 180, 200, whatever it is. If they get it right, then it has that ability. But uh, you can take your insurance, you know, just say, okay, I'll wait. It doesn't matter if I give up, you know, if I give up something now. At least I've got the cash because at the moment it's pointing towards uh, further trouble.
1: David, I have spent a few very fruitful days reading the Stellenbosch Mafia, the book yes. that you mentioned the other day. And you are the man who coined that phrase, according to Peter DeToy, it was more it was like 15 years ago, uh, on a radio show that we had back then, where you started talking about the Stellenbosch Mafia, and now it's developed into this, into this bar word for, uh, for a bunch of the richest people in the country.
4: I, th- I think we all used to refer to them. I'm not sure who used it first. I might have picked up on it. Someone in passing conversation might have said, oh, you know, it's the Stellenbosch Mafia. Meaning, I think it was done in a very nice way. It wasn't done with any malice at all. It was merely saying these are very powerful men, very powerful businessmen who live in that particular area, Somerset West, Stellenbosch, and so-and-so. You know, it, so we included them almost lightheartedly, not meaning... Uh, to compare them to the Italian clan at at all. But I think subsequent to that, I think it's taken on a a different meaning, meaning, you know, people who are sinisterly powerful, I think. Uh, I don't think so. I think they were wonderful. Yanni Muton was down there.
1: Um, well, he's yeah, mentioned yeah, in the book as a as a member yeah, of the mafia, uh, Johan Rupert. Yeah, Johan. Yeah, I don't think
4: Johan Rupert was mafia. But Marcus. Was what on Marcus? Marcus. What? What well, Mar- Marcus is genuine. That's he's <laughs> the only genuine member you know? of the mafia. Uh, it's Marcus? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ma- Marcus the mafia don. Well, I, I guess <laughs> th- that's probably one of the Did that's probably know, one actually, of uh, the ni- uh, David. You,
4: he, uh,
1: that's probably one of the nicest descriptions that we've heard of Marcus in recent times. <laughs>
4: But he was engaging at that time. You know, no one suspected him in those early years. We're talking 2003 or thereabout. He was always good entertainment when he came on, and he had this really pronounced accent. And uh, and, and you know, at that stage, no one suspected anything was wrong. Yanni Mouton was superb. He was a wonderful man, also. Huge respect for him still to this day and that. And of course, Jan Rupert. But we had the, the Cafe Tech chaps down there. A lot of financial planners and a lot of financial people were moving down there, uh, making that their home. So, you, you know, we,
1: have you read uh, the book?
4: No, I haven't. I haven't. I've, uh, I just finished a, 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 a book on, uh, Boerter.
1: All right. Well, um, I'll tell you. So, i
4: tell just, you what, Dave. I Dad. love history and I love, personal stories.
1: You're not going to be able to put this one down. Okay? Seriously, it's one of those... Uh, you know, often, often one sees in South Africa that uh, mm. a few journalists come up and they write books because it's a topic that, that mm. needs to be covered and, and away they go. And uh, they, they are, I suppose, cash in in the short term. But this one Peter de has—he's the right person to write the book. He was—he mm-hmm. was—he uh, grew up—he went to school in Stellenbosch, grew up in in uh, in the in the town, went to university there, and he has access to all of these guys. <laughs> Man, it's it's a good book, Dave. <laughs> I, uh, I love
4: it. I love. Mm. It. Are we going to talk we to it, him know, in a minute? Uh, we know, uh, we know them from. Uh, you know, we know them from a distance I, uh i don't know the inside story but i can imagine them sitting around a coffee table having breakfast and talking about things so
1: <laughs> <laughs> well stay with us because in uh, in just a little while in fact uh, after a little a few lines of this song we're going to be talking to peter de toy the man who wrote the author of the Stellenbosch Mafia, and it really is a good book. I'm expecting that this will be the highlight of our show today. Well, as promised, Peter DeToy is with us now. Uh, Peter, the, I was just mentioning a little earlier that you were the right man to write this book, The Stellenbosch Mafia. It's kept me enthralled for a couple of days. What are the sales like? Have you had feedback yet from, uh, from the publishers?
0: Well, thank you, Alec. Uh, I'm glad that it kept you. Uh, it, was, it was entertaining for a while. Um, yes, it, it's going very well. Uh, it's, uh, it, it was uh, at the top spot last week with its full, full first week on the shelves, and uh, uh, the publishers, Jonathan Ball, told me yesterday that it, uh, it's at number one again for the second week since uh, since it was published, so, so, so we're very happy with that.
1: Sure, it deserves it, uh, and it's not often that I would say that, but... Many books come out of South Africa that are just made. There's a there's a person is made to write it, the time is right, and you've combined all of those. But just tell us a little about your background and your relationship with Stellenbosch.
0: Thanks, uh, Alec. I appreciate it. I I, uh, I went to school in Stellenbosch. Uh, completed high school there. Went to went to university after then, uh, after after school. So uh, you know, I've I've I lived there for a for a chunk of my life, um, and uh, I loved it. I enjoyed it very much. I. I was uh, at school, I was a boarder which uh, which has also got a very particular particular school life attached to it, which I loved and then university of course, was such a wonderful space and a wonderful wonderful environment to uh to 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 study so um, I often go back i 'm going back next week incidentally for a for a for a school reunion so so i 've got very strong and very uh, uh, very uh, very uh, um, uh, you know happy me- strong ties and happy memories of the town um, uh and, uh and 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 these people that I write about have always been in uh in, in my orbit, uh, you know, living in Stellenbosch as a youngster. Um Rembrandt, uh, Anton Rupert has always been a big figure in Stellenbosch. Um the way in which uh the 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 town was built around a couple of institutions like the university, like some schools and certainly Rembrandt um, played a big role in my formative years. Um you know, a lot of people that I went to school and university with are, are descendants or family or, you know, children of, of some of the members of the so-called mafia. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, it, uh, it was always intriguing to me um, to uh, sometimes come into contact with them. And um, obviously, over the last couple of years, uh, ever since the Bell Pottinger disinformation campaign, you know, the, the, the idea of the Stellenbosch mafia changed quite a lot ever since... Um, uh, it was it first started uh, appearing uh, almost tw- almost 20 years ago.
1: Mm, as a, a mm, as a nasty well the nasty angle to it as uh, David Shapiro was saying a little earlier when he first spoke of the Stellenbosch mafia it was almost as a um, in, in a fun context but that turned really yes. nasty though and you know we've got a lot to a lot of ground to cover but I want to start with Johan Rupert. He gave you an interview, presumably after that disastrous interview that he had on Power FM where, sure, most of South Africa uh, was able to describe him as Bell Pottinger had had depicted him. Uh, Did he he feel um, uh, any uh, unhappiness about actually doing that interview in the first place? Look, um,
0: Johan, Rupert's a, a, quite an enigmatic figure, uh, Alec, and, and you've dealt with him too. And and, and he's um he his is the, the 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 disinformation campaign which 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 started in 2016, 2017 with Paul Puttenger, with the help of Duduzane Zuma, um, uh, to try and draw away fire from state capture and uh, Jacob Zuma then and, and and what was going on. Uh, you know, Rupert was a very easy target, uh, a white businessman from Stellenbosch, um, you know, and, and he, was, he was cast as in, in the role of the ultimate capitalist villain, you know, the guy that was sucking the country dry, the guy that was in actual control of, of government, you know, who was trying to manipulate government, who was controlling the media. And David Shapiro is right, you know, when, when the term Stellenbosch mafia first came into into use... It was in a term of endearment, almost. You know, it was a fun way to describe this bunch of Stellenbosch businessmen who really came good, like Yanni Maton, um, and and I think he was well, Johan Rupert was, uh, you know, he was convinced to do the Power him interview because he has some concerns about his legacy. And if you look at the demographic of Power FM, it's a it's a, it's it's the it's the young, up and coming, black middle class uh, inclined to. Uh, to be uh, receptive to the EFF's message, um, which is a, which is a weird phenomenon, but that's the that's the demographic that he was speaking to, um, and he the, the the purpose of that interview was to try and uh, uh, you know to try and recover uh, some of the lost ground, you know, trying to repair the damage to his land, because I think he he's, he desperately wants to be seen as a, a loyal mm-hmm. South African, uh, uh, you know, someone that has certainly uh you know the country's interest at heart, but also someone that wants to to be accepted by the broader black business and political elite but mm-hmm. it was an abject disaster and, and you know i think there's a couple of reasons for that first i think i think um i think that the, you know him and his team were a little bit out of touch with the demographic with the people that they were going to speak to um, and i think he was ill prepared to to do an interview of that that magnitude it was quite a it was a big evening you know it was a big hall in certain uh, almost five hundred people I think were there in attendance. it was it was broadcast live on ENCA and and, 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 and para and it was bold you know in his circles as an attempt to try and uh, resuscitate his image um, and unfortunately, what it did was it just it just confirmed some of the caricatures that that was created of him by by damaging but very successful ultimately the campaign, which, which is making a comeback, incidentally. Like it's, it's making a very strong comeback.
1: Hmm. The point that you made there as well was that they seemed to draw on the Hogenheimer kind of uh, yes. a, approach of the National Party many years ago.
0: Yes, and, 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 and uh, that was quite, quite interesting. If you look back at the, at, the, at the rise of Afrikaner capitalism or capitalists, you know, the rise of the Afrikaner business class, um, uh, Afrikaners initially were quite averse to the system of capitalism. Uh, you know, they were, they were drawn to a sort of a collectivism, um, you know, and, and, and that's where the socialists in the early 30s thought, you know, Afrikaners might be right for the picking because they, they aren't buying into this, uh, the, the, the capitalist system still domi- back then dominated by English-speaking South Africans and, and, and Jewish speaking South Africans. And the, Berger, the, the biggest mouthpiece uh, of, of, of Afrikaner nationalism of its day Created a character called Hochenheimen, which was this, uh, uh a, a, a figurative Jewish business person with a, with a, with a bent nose and a bent back, you know, who was just, uh, trying to steal as much money from unsuspecting Bura as, as, uh, as they could. And, 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 this same tactic was used on Rupert by Bell Pottinger, by the ANC, by Black First Lancers, by the EFF. Um, And it's been difficult to change that narrative for Rupert. And, you know, my book certainly wasn't uh, a hagiography trying to (laughs) to, uh, rehabilitate Rupert's image. But what what I wanted to do was to try and put you on Rupert into perspective. Um, You know, and and that was that, you know, the the part that deals with Rupert in the book. It's trying to uh, obviously humanize him because I think it's interesting for people to to understand uh, their subjects better if they can relate to it. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was, I, was, I was fortunate to intervene twice at his house. He was very generous with his time. Um, and we spoke about all manner of things. And, you know, the, the relationship that I saw on those two occasions between him and some of his uh, staff and workers, for example, uh, you know, led me to believe that he's got to he, you know, he's, he's, the people that work for him are very loyal to him.
1: Yeah, and you see that with the Rembrandt group. But I, really my question, and it's very clear, he spoke freely to you, but you also wrote freely about what he said. This is by no means uh, a, something that perhaps he would have written. But I, I remember the, the biography uh, that Alice Schroeder wrote about Warren Buffett, and I, I'll, I'll get there in a minute. After the, pre the biography, she had full access to him. After the biography, he didn't speak to her again. I'm wondering, if you, Rupert, <laughs> how he feels about the book, having read stuff in there which I'm pretty sure he would he would much have preferred not to have been in. Are you? Can you still get through to him? I,
0: I I can't I can't Alec uh, I can't. Um, we 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 we, we had quite a, a, a cordial and a and a, and a, uh, you know warm relationship for four or five or six years. I think you know he's a he's a he's a, he's a fantastic. Uh, uh, interlocutor, you to you know he's, he's, he's an interesting guy to speak to he's got uh, you know he has fantastic uh, access across the world which 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 makes him interesting which which gives him very good insight into all manner of affairs um, and unfortunately you know I think there's there's uh, you know he's uh, you know I, I, I engaged with him before the publish before the book was published to tell him look this is this is what the book says and this is what my this is what I say and I, I'd like to engage with you on it. Um, he, he, didn't, he opted not to do it, and we haven't had contact since, which, which, which is unfortunate, because I, I, I you know, I tried to write an honest appraisal of him, and um, look, and, and, you know, wherever I go, you know, I tell people that, you know, last night at the book launch of Hyde Park, for example, um, uh, I was asked by, a, a black member of the audience, uh, is Johan Rupert and the rest of the so-called Stellenbosch Mafia, are they loyal South Africans? And I, you know, we're, clear conscience could say, you know, they are very loyal to the country, they want the country to succeed, and they are very committed to the democratic project. And I think that's the big thing that the Bell Puttinger campaign tried to try to, uh, to, to, to get across, was that these people are only in it for the money, they don't care about the country, they don't care about the South Africans' uh, walks of life. And I don't think that's true, uh, and, I, and I think this book uh, tried to put that into perspective. But no, we haven't had contact since. Uh, I hope to re-establish contact some
1: somewhere in the future. You know, do you have, to have a chat to him as well? Mm. It'll be interesting if you've you've uh, you've got an Alice Schroeder on your on your uh, hands, which is which is very possible. The, I, I love the piece that uh, the the quote, and I just want to read it back to you. With great wealth comes great distance from ordinary life, and that does appear to be the situation uh, with Johann Rupert, as as you mm. described there. But Someone who did love the money, or seemed to love the money above all else, and was prepared to crook and lie and cheat about it, was Marcus Yester. What's he up to mm-hmm. now? He is well covered in your book, but where, where, what's he up to?
0: You know, uh, Alec, just just before I go on, you know, and, and thank you for your absolute treasure trove of interviews that you did over the years with Marcus Yester. I think I think you 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 had the most access of anyone uh, to Yester, to and, and and reading back. Reading those interviews, you know, it's interesting to see how, how he changed over the years. You know, the first interview I think he did was up in Joburg when they were still in, in Weinberg, the head office there, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. How it changed when he went to, to Stellenbosch. I'm not exactly sure where he is at the moment. I mean, uh, as far as I understand, you know, he's sometimes seen out and about in Stellenbosch. I know for a fact that, you know, he, he's attended some very raucous parties in Stellenbosch and out on the West Coast. Um, he's been spotted at the Tiger Waterfront in Dalby. He's been spotted at the Waterfront in Cape Town. Uh, you know, I, I know from uh, you know, sometimes people tell me from Hermanus that they've seen him dining at a at a restaurant. So he seems to be out and about. And you he, uh, know, that he's involved in a number of of court cases at the moment. Um, so he was he was quite a divisive figure in Stellenbosch. Alex, you know, the people whom I spoke to, especially those in the in the Remgro orbit. You know they never took a liking into to Marcus Eurster. You know they were they were put off from the very beginning by the way in which Steinoff uh, 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 announced itself uh, into uh, in town. You know they 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 established their headquarters right next to Remgro's headquarters, which I thought was, was 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 quite poetic. If you if you stand in in Yanni Durant's office, who's the CEO of Remgro, um, you know Marcus Eurster's office as the crow flies. It's not farther away than 50 or 60 meters, <laughs> literally across a, 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 a wall dividing the two properties. So you know, it, wow. it was quite ironic sitting there talking to Yanni Durant about Stellenbosch, Remgro, and, and, and Spinoff, and then literally uh, looking out across the, the, the Spinoff building and knowing what's going on there. So, USA was a devices figure. They breathed into town, spent expensive cars, expensive parties, uh, You know, uh, bought expensive houses. Um mid-level managers' wives were driven around by chaussures. Um it was, it, was quite a, it was quite unsettling for, for many people in Stellenbosch, but many people in Stellenbosch invested quite heavily in the country, the, or in, the, in, in the business, rather. I'm mm. um, talking about Steinies. You know, how many Steinies do you have? And that's referring to how much stock do you have in the company? And, and of course, like you know, it, it all came crashing down.
1: Yeah, including the big investors with GT Ferreira. Did you have much access to him?
0: Uh, I, I did have some access to G P. He's, um, you know, he's quite reluctant to talk about 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 his investments in startups because I think, to be honest, I think many of them are, you know, if not quite embarrassed, then very sensitive about the fact that they invested so heavily in a company that many people didn't understand. Um, Durant told me that he had a look at startups' financials twice because they had to consider whether or not to invest in Steinem. And then Yanni Durant, you know, who's no mug in his environment and in in the investment space, said, look, I don't understand this business. I think there's some sensitivity and and some some embarrassment, I think, uh, amongst some because they invested so much. In, uh, in spinal.
1: You did uh, engage quite a bit with uh, Edwin Herzog, the founder of MediClinic. We had a question from Freddie Mayring a bit earlier to say that's one that, uh, that he would have liked you, because he's obviously read your book, he would have liked you to dig into a little more because the mm. destruction mm. of value there has been quite extraordinary over the past little while.
0: It has, and, 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 you know, my, my interview with, with Edwin Habsok was done, I think, before this spiral started, so it, it's a little bit outdated. Um, he was, he was, uh, during our interview, Habsok was very concerned with their investments in, in, in Britain, uh, in Switzerland, and we know the one in the Middle East didn't really pan out. Um, but what was interesting about my conversation with Hatsok more broadly was their frustration in trying to assist government locally in this country to try and improve the healthcare system. Um, he spoke extensively, and, and I think there's, look, there's, a, there's a much deeper story which hasn't been told about many of these companies, and simply because I didn't have enough time as a, as a working journalist to, to go that deep as I would have wished. But Hatsok told me about the frustrations that they have in working with government. And also, um, he spoke of the person at the Department of Health that's in charge of overseeing the private hospital sector, that's just totally opposed and and, and, uh, and, 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 and they've taken a very aggressive uh, approach to the private healthcare sector. You know, um, They don't like the fact that a company like Mediclinic... Um,
1: oh, my goodness. We're going to get told of Peter in just a second. I don't know what happened there. I hope it hasn't been... Um doesn't seem to be a problem this side let's just see if we can reconnect hope you don't have a problem okay uh, yeah, we, you were talking about uh, about the concern from the department or uh, officials in the department of health towards private health care
0: yeah you know, so, so hatsoff was extremely frustrated the military group was extremely frustrated with the way that government related to the private health care sector uh, there's, there's, according to hatsoff there's a there's a there's a there's a uh, you know, they're, they're very adverse to enabling a company like Mediclinic to succeed in their field uh, and also to, uh, to, to accept help from MediClinics. They, they train more nurses privately than the public healthcare sector does annually. Um, so they, they, they pump in expertise into the sector, uh, but, but all they get from, from government is, is hostility, and that was hugely frustrating to answer.
1: I, I think uh, one of the issues that comes out of your book is that these guys are loyal South Africans. They want the country to, to succeed. They would like to help if they can. And they—they they have. it's not profit first. Uh, and it, I guess that's a little bit like the Afrikaner way. I mean, if you look at RemGro, they've never, ever operated on the basis of let's extract the maximum amount of money in the shortest possible time. They really have invested longer term. Mm.
0: Mm, no, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the one thing that, that cut across the board in my conversations with everyone, from Jan Rupert, um to Mukhila Ruat Kapitek and everyone in between, um, was that they want the country to succeed, that they are committed to the democratic project, that they are loyal South Africans, that, you know, that apartheid was a system that was unsustainable and no one has any designs to leave the country, although in that final interview that I did do with you he was Growing very agitated, and he said, "You know, his children are overseas and They won't come back." And he was, he was intimating that he was preparing to leave. Or, you know, the, 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 uh, there's a point in his life that's approaching that he wants to leave. Mm. Um, so that was quite. If someone like you Rupert wants to leave the country, then I think, then I think government needs to sit up and take notice, because it's 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 the, the Rupert wherever he travels, um, and 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 wherever he goes to speak at conferences, or you know. Visiting his business agents or whatever, you know, he, he flies the flag, you know, and he's always done that. But he told you that it's becoming increasingly difficult to do that. And um, uh, the interview was done before our current crisis, you know, before uh, uh, you know the the, the, the crisis really hit earlier this year. Mm. Um, so I think it's even you know since our interview, I think he might have grown more negative. But what they what they are, they are loyal South Africans. They they don't they're not part of uh, an Illuminati-type of group, or George Soros-funded, like the EFF often likes to say, that are, you know, hell bent on extracting as much value as they can. Uh, and, and manipulating the currency, manipulating government, and pulling tarot on the, the strings. That's, that's not what they're doing. So, so the ESA parts are pretty disappointing in the book because there's no grand conspiracy.
1: Yeah. Well, it's really, it's, it's really a good history. And, and just uh, as a small part there, before we ask you the final questions, is uh, that it, it makes it very clear that this company, or uh, well, Richmond and Rembrandt really made its money overseas rather than in South Africa and brings dividends back to the country. I think Rupert mm-hmm. said, I think you said that, that uh, they are the biggest taxpayer, or he's the biggest taxpayer mm-hmm. in South Africa. You know what mm-hmm. to lose your biggest taxpayer. But, but to end off with, a, a story I hadn't followed because I haven't really been that close to what's going on in the rugby, but this fellow, Yuri Roo which you expose uh, in brutal detail. He's the chief executive of the South African Rugby Football Union. It sounds like this guy should be in jail, not a chief executive of anything. Just tell us what's going on there. Well, you know, that's, that's
0: quite remarkable, Alex, and I think it's, it's a, an underreported story. We reported it quite extensively a couple of years ago, but it's it died down. Right? So Yuri Ru was head of, 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 of university's finances, um, and he used the access that he had to the reserve fund. To um, improperly, according to KPMG, uh, shift funds around uh, came to the university's right from where it was dispersed for various uh, uh, pet projects and various uh, projects that, uh, that you wanted. This is it Stellenbosch University.
1: Peter, tell but about about university.
0: University, mm-hmm. yes, he was chairperson of the rugby club He was also head of university's finances And he used university's reserves To move around money To the advantage of the rugby club And certain individuals in the rugby club Now KPMG did a, did a, did a deep dive into, into the university's finances Into the rugby club's finances And found uh, serious you know, found, found There are serious allegations Of financial impropriety um, The university then proceeded To lay charges against rue at the Hawks in terms of the Prevention of Corruption Act, the um, university proceeded to, to uh, lay a, a sue uh, him, for damages in his personal capacity for 35 million rand, more than 35 million rand. And that case has been stuck in the High Court, uh, since 2015, I think. Now there's a, uh, a an off books mediation arrangement between the university and Rue himself to try and come to some or other agreement. Rue 24 has gone to court, uh, or is trying to get access to these uh, these proceedings because it's in the public interest because the university is a public-funded institution. Uh, the fact that Rue was appointed CEO uh, as, uh, at the SA Rugby Union, you know, if, if they have, if they are serious about corporate governance, he should never have been appointed given the, the, the seriousness of the allegations against him. There was a massive conflict between him and Oregon Hoskins, who was president of the SA Rugby Union. He forced out Hoskins. Hoskins left the SA Rugby Union a couple of years ago with the golden handshake and non and he signed a non-disclosure agreement, which means that he's not allowed to speak about what happened behind closed doors. So that's a story that's still unfolding, and that needs to be told as well. But it's, it's part of this whole Stellenbosch influence on on society and, and rugby being such a big part of Stellenbosch. Marcus have to try to get in on the rugby. Uh, you know, it, it was a, it was an interesting addition to the whole uh, the whole study of, of, of the count.
1: Peter, it is a fascinating book, one of the best I've read in the recent past, and uh, congratulations on all the hard work that you've done on it. It's been a a pleasure talking with you today, and I hope that you stay number one on the bestsellers list for many, many, many weeks to come. Are you working on another book? Have you got something else uh, up your sleeve?
0: I think my wife would be me if I do you know, so am <laughs> There's nothing there's nothing on the horizon at the moment. We'll we take a couple of months off. But thank you very much for your time.
1: It's 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 been wonderful chatting to you and thanks for all those saying to interviews. <laughs> it's a pleasure, Peter. I'm, uh, well, I, I can assure you that this is a book that you're going to thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. And it it is, it's un it's un un, un unburnished. Unvarnished. Uh he He's gone in, spoken to people a little bit like Michael Wolff did uh, with Rupert Murdoch and uh, Donald Trump, but not not as brutal and as, uh, and certainly uh, hasn't hasn't pushed the envelope that far. But Peter has done an, an exceptionally good job on the uh, so-called Stellenbosch Mafia, talking to the main players over there, doing a lot of research, getting some useful insights that will help us to understand. What, why these very powerful business people congregate in the one town in the Western Cape and where their hearts and heads are. And I would, I would hope, I would really hope that uh, members of government in South Africa would read this book, get to know these guys a little better. Of course, it's warts and all, um, so nobody is perfect and they, they aren't, certainly aren't angels. But the thing that struck me very strongly, as mentioned to Peter just a moment ago, is that both Johan Rupert's company and Chris Becker's company made their money outside of South Africa. So here you've got two guys who live in the country who've actually done incredibly well outside of the country. They're global business leaders in their own right. A little bit like Elon Musk, if you, if you like. But what they've done is they've kept the headquarters here and bringing money back into South Africa a multiple of the investment capital that they took out in the first place. So it's almost like these are the guys we should be looking after and, and nurturing because they are contributing to the fiscus uh, exponentially more than many others uh, who perhaps have a, a, a more favorable approach from those in power in South Africa. It's a really good book. Uh, I'm not surprised that it's been number one on the bestseller list since its publication, and it wouldn't surprise me to see it staying there for quite some time into the future and joining us now is paul hoffman from accountability now well you're a popular guy paul um, lots of people wanting to get hold of you today not surprising because you have launched another two barrels at the public protector when we spoke a couple of weeks ago you had put forward a proposal to the legal practice council to have her debarred what, what happened there
5: I got a, re- uh, a re- um, acknowledgement of receipt of the complaint this morning, uh, Alec, and uh, I think that the, uh, the wheels of justice are, are grinding in the uh, disciplinary corridors of the Legal Practice Council. All
1: right. So, what does that mean? Uh, they haven't sat yet to presumably to actually uh, meet they, on this. They an will issue.
5: give her an opportunity. They will look at the, uh, the judgment and, and decide whether it has the seeds of a striking off application. I believe it does. They will then give her the opportunity of putting her side of the story. And if they are satisfied that there is indeed a case, they they will then um, apply to court for her to be struck off the role of advocates.
1: Okay. And what's the process? How long does that take?
5: Well, that that could be a matter of months, uh, excluding appeals, obviously. It could be done by the end of the year.
1: Okay, but you're not waiting for that. You are now following in another line as well, and uh, you put forward this week two further steps, one very innovative. we we'll talk about that in a moment, but firstly, you've laid charges of perjury and defeating the ends of justice with the South African police services.
5: Yes, those charges were accepted at the uh, Ocean View police station on Monday morning, and the Hawks in Pretoria are investigating. It's a very simple investigation. They need to get hold of the original affidavits from the Constitutional Court and the the judgment and place those before uh, the National Prosecuting Authority for a decision on which charges to to proceed on. Uh, We think that perjury is the easy one. It's possible that a prosecutor will want to do perjury and defeating the ends of justice.
1: Mm. Uh, uh, What's the sanction for that?
5: Well, she'll go to jail.
1: That's that serious? Perjury? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, certainly for an officer of the court to, to be involved in misleading the court and lying on oath is a, a problem that, um, <laughs> yeah, it goes to the root of the relationship between the court and the legal practitioner. And it's certainly an aggravating circumstance that a legal practitioner should um, should deposed to a perjured affidavit, which is what has happened here. She she uh, falsely swore a, a, a version of the, uh, of the facts, to which the court has rejected as false.
1: The second issue is that you've actually laid a complaint at the public protector itself. Now, how does that work out?
5: <laughs> the public protector's office is not actually a one-man band. It is a a um, an office with uh, branches in all centres a deputy and there is absolutely no reason if there is maladministration for the public protector's office uh, not to uh, get on and investigate the, the maladministration which is apparent in the in the number of matters that have gone awry along the way
1: so the deputy would then be the one doing the investigations
5: I- Yes, either the deputy or one of the, uh, um, the uh, other uh, senior members, if the deputy feels conflicted, will, will lead that investigation. And basically, to compare modus operandi of Tuli on Saleh's leadership with the modus operandi of the current leadership, I suspect with an unfavorable outcome and a remedial action in the form of reverting to doing things the way that Tully used to do them.
1: Now, you also mentioned that there are five fires at the moment that are burning under the bum of uh, uh, the public protector. (laughs) take us through those five?
5: Look, the the ones that have been in circulation for some time are the um, investigation or the, the pending inquiry by the Justice Committee in Parliament, which is going to sit on the 3rd of September, Uh, The deputy president has that, sorry, that inquiry is about her impeachment or what the constitution calls her removal from office. The uh, um, deputy president could suspend her while that investigation is pending. Uh, The third prong on the fork is the criminal case. The fourth is the disciplinary proceedings. for her striking off the role of advocates, and the fifth is the investigation by her uh, her office into her
1: maladministration. Well that's Paul Hoffman who is having a full go at the public protector. He is the founder and the man um, behind accountability now. Well, thanks for being with us today on Rational Radio. We'll back again next Wednesday at noon. Until then, from Alicog, cheerio.